And now, if I can invite the next panel up, our ETF industry roundtable. And we want to thank the New York Stock Exchange for organizing this panel. I'll pass it over to Mo Sparks now, the moderator. Testing, testing. OK, perfect. Well, good afternoon to everybody, and, and thank you for joining us. Um, as we just learned, today we're going to talk a little bit more about ETFs, so kind of changing gears, closed-end funds, BDCs, and, and wrapping with exchange-traded funds. And so, um, as I just said, most Sparks have been with exchange for about three years. Uh, prior to that, I spent a decade at the Vanguard Group, and so was in product development and helped to found the global product management function. So naturally, as an exchange, we help to support the fine folks that are here today. And so I'm joined by a great set of panelists. I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves. So maybe, Steve, we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, my name is Steve Cook. I uh, have a fairly long, long tenure in the ETF space. Uh, I got into it uh, with uh, the launch of the Qs back in the late 90s. Um, spent a lot of time on the servicing side, helping different asset managers enter the ETF space, uh, and then joined Harbor Capital Advisors about 18 months ago <clears throat> to lead their effort into ETFs. Uh, this morning, we launched our 10th ETF on the NYSE, ticker HAPI, H-A-P-I. Uh, we're excited about all the products we launched, uh, and so it's kind of the background. Yeah. Good, after, good afternoon, everybody. Fred Edwards, um, here with Newberger Berman, uh, one of the many new entrants into the ETF space uh, over the past couple years. Um, I arrived with the launch of our first three products, uh, three on the market right now. We've got a bigger picture in mind, just a little bit of background. I spent six years at ProShares. I worked at uh, Mainsley Investments with Index IQ, and I had an, uh, an equity trading background prior to that. Afternoon, everybody. I'm Michael Giuliano. I'm with Putnam Investments. Just like Fred, uh, new, new issuer in the market. We've been uh, in market since May of 2021. We have six ETFs now all listed with Mo uh, and you know, plenty more in the hopper. So I am on our product and strategy team. and. Um, you know, have been there since day one on our ETF launch. Perfect. Yeah, so I think today we're going to kind of focus our conversation around some of the hot topics that are happening in the ETF industry to just kind of give a little bit of a primer. Um, we'll make sure to leave a few minutes at the end, see if there's any questions. We naturally could talk for the entirety of the time that we have. Um, but really, I think we want to start the conversation around one of the more prevalent trends that's been happening in this market for the last few years, which is the rise of active management, right? So I like to think about the ETF industry is kind of a tranche of threes, right? So 1.0 for the industry was passive products, SPY obviously leading that off. Uh, kind of 2.0 was what we call smart beta, factor-based products or alternative beta. And then 3.0 has been the entrance of the folks that we have here joining us on the panel today, which is a more traditional active manager, right? And so uh, we want to spend a little bit of time talking through that trend and the perspectives that each of these guests kind of bring to that and speakers. So maybe Steve, let's start with you and your firm. Uh, you already mentioned uh, you, you joined us uh, about 18 months ago, uh, 10 products in market. We got really happy today with the launch <laughs> of Happy. Had to say it. Um, so maybe talk to us about Harbor Capital and, and what kind of led to the decision to enter the market. Sure. So Harbor Capital has a long history of being a manager of managers. We seek out best-in-class asset managers in various asset classes, try and package those products and bring in the market. Um, uh, initially, if you wanted to buy PIMCO as a retail investor, the only way to access that was through a Harbor Capital mutual fund. Uh, ultimately, PIMCO went out on their own um, and launched their own mutual funds. But that's the type of kind of research work and due diligence work that we've done over the years. Uh, and we just felt, if you look at the market environment, if you look at flows over the last 10 years, 
Broadly, the mutual fund structure has been in secular decline and outflows for the better part of a decade. Uh, ETFs have captured most of the net new assets in the taxable account environment and the wealth environment. Um, and yes, that was traditionally in index-based products, um, but given the advantages of the ETF, structurally more tax efficient, cheaper to operate and run, uh, and the liquidity it provides, it makes sense that um, those dollars would start to flow into actively managed ETFs. And then in end of 2019, beginning of 2020, uh, the regulatory environment really changed. Um, and what was kind of uh, a, a tilted environment, if you launched an active ETF, you were swimming upstream with some of the tax efficiency issues and other advantages that early entrants had. The, pl the playing field was leveled in 2020, and really I think that's why you're seeing a lot more creativity and a lot more active managers get into the space. Um, and, and with more supply becomes more, comes more interest from investors, and so more flows are starting to move into those types of products. And so when people talk about, okay, most of the flows have traditionally been in index products, well, that was really almost the only choice that investors had. They didn't have a lot of opportunity in active ETFs. And so now that that regulatory playing field's been leveled, more products coming to market, we're starting to see dollars come into those types of products. Yeah. I think that, that the passing of what we call in the ETF industry, the ETF rule, was truly a leveling of the playing field, right? And so just to contextualize kind of the market and the size of the market today, uh, you have roughly $300 billion in actively managed ETFs. You know, compare that to the broader ETF ecosystem, and you're looking at, you know, depending on the day, anywhere between six and seven trillion, right? So lots of runway, but a market that's been growing really rapidly, particularly over the last 24 months. And so. NYC, for instance, in the last 24 months, I think we've welcomed about 75 new active ETF managers, right? So this year alone, it's been 36 active ETF managers that have come into the market. And we're not just talking small shops, we're talking large uh, legacy asset managers, largely having mutual fund strategies, close-end fund strategies, you kind of name the wrapper, beginning to travel in the direction of becoming wrapper agnostic because of everything that Steve just shared. So Fred, obviously your firm was one of those, with Newberg Berman. Um, maybe talk to us about the enter entrance into the market, why the first few strategies, and kind of what's on the horizon. Yeah, sure. So uh, you know, I think for a lot of the active managers out there, it's been kind of painful to watch um, you know, the growth of ETFs, passive investing, factor investing. If you're making the case you know, that you're an active manager, it's kind of hard to uh, you know, just launch an index or some kind of factor-based product that doesn't have you know, PMs or bottom-up uh, analysis behind it. And obviously you had, you know, the rule in 2019, 60-11 kind of opened the door for the active manager. Neuberger um, had been discussing its entree into the ETF business as far back as 2015. That's when they filed. So uh, waited very patiently, um, you know, for that door to open for the active manager. And, you know, like many out there, you're, you know, there's a little bit of recency bias in terms of, um, you know, what do we launch, what's selling right now, you know, what's going on in the marketplace, and again, you know, things are moving very quickly out there. Um, Newberger decided to launch uh, into the thematic space, um, you know, and while it may seem like, you know, we're chasing, it is an $18 billion uh, franchise. We have, um, you know, assets here in the U.S. running SMAs assets in Asia, in Asia. We're also doing some work uh, in Asia for ETFs, and we thought it was kind of, you know, a natural place uh, to start. 
makes a lot of sense, and that's a story that we've heard over and over again in terms of, for many folks, right, entering this market was on the product development roadmap for a number of years, and they're just waiting for that catalyst, and that catalyst comes, here we are. So enter you, Michael, right, in Putnam Investments, uh, a little bit ahead of our friends in Newberger Berman, but recently entered the market, recently launched another strategy. Talk us through as well, kind of the entrance, why now, what's kind of uh, up and coming? Yeah, I think it's <clears throat> I think it's the same story as a lot of our competitors, which is you know probably the biggest myth in house at Putnam was that our product team didn't know ETFs existed, or that they seemed to be doing pretty well. Um, you know we do we do have the newspaper, we have Morningstar, <laughs> we knew, but there's this really entrenched barrier, which is with your investment professionals having to disclose their full holdings every single day, and having spent 10, 20, 30 years guarding that with their lives. This is their livelihood, is I make money based on my portfolio management decisions, which I don't have to disclose until, you know, the next month, the next quarter. And so, you know, just as they, folks were saying about 6C11, with the rise of the semi-transparent wrappers, um, you know, that opened the door for Putnam, just like it opened the door for a lot of folks, that made it a lot easier for us internally to get, get our portfolio managers over the hump and say, hey, you can enter this market that we do realize has been growing extremely fast, and you can do it in a way that doesn't compromise your intellectual property. So that was a really important step for us, but the same as many of our competitors, we got a taste of what it's like to be an ETF issuer and we didn't wanna let you know the boundaries of the semi-transparent wrapper hold us down. We didn't wanna say, hey, we're only gonna launch, at least for now, US equity ETFs, why would we do that? And so that got us, you know, that cracked the door open for us and we're now a fully-fledged ETF issuer. We have, you know, as Mo said, two more ETFs that listed just a few weeks ago. It's funny timing, a BDC income ETF that invests in publicly traded BDCs, uh, as well as a thematic ETF that we call BioRevolution. And our plans over the next, you know, six, 12 months are to list many more ETFs across asset classes. So I think, you know, we've spoken to many of our counterparts. We've spoken to our, you know, clients, the distributors. It's really the same story this artificial barrier between active management and the ETF wrapper has come down thanks to people like Mo and you know we're not going back. Yeah. I appreciate Michael's comments, but I don't know if it was just me. I think it's a, a whole industry that's <laughs> yeah. working quite hard to make these innovations happen. But I think that just a moment to maybe spend on what we call in the industry semi-transparent ETFs because yeah. it is a, a novel development and an innovation in our industry, right? So for those that haven't been following, traditionally, right, all ETFs disclose on a daily basis full portfolio holdings, right? And so uh, there was a number of years ago, folks at the Amex, right, if we go back, uh, you know, about 25 years, that uh, dreamt up the idea of something they didn't have to disclose uh, holdings every single day, but could still maintain an ability to be exchange traded, right? And so the New York Stock Exchange is one of a few providers in the marketplace that has some intellectual property that allows asset managers to maintain flexibility in terms of disclosure, akin to a mutual fund, right? I like to think about them as, as active ETFs, because that's in fact what they are, even though that they disclose uh, their holdings just a different time period and a frequency. And so, you know, that market, there's about 50 uh, ETFs that use various structures. Uh, you're looking at about $5 billion in assets and still relatively small and nascent, but growing, obviously there's certain folks that have an interest in maintaining that IP, but restricted, as Michael stated, in terms of the sorts of strategies that are allowed there today. 
working with the regulators to kind of carve out future ability to go global with strategies, to add international, and so I think that'll be continued innovation for kind of our marketplace. But let's kind of switch gears maybe and, and talk a little bit about what clients are saying today. And so I know, Fred, you spend a lot of time with ETFs clients. Obviously, you've launched new products recently. You're getting out there. You have a lot of volatility in the marketplace. I mean, I think we watch it at the exchange every day, and it seems like we start down 200 and we end up 500. Who knows where we're going to end up today? Um, but what are you hearing from your clients, and, and how are you integrating, and what are you telling them? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the questions, uh, you know, for anybody in this room who's, you know, out there talking to clients or, um, you know, whatever it may be, it's, it's all of the above. And, uh, you know, I think... Uh, the story that seems that we seem to be speaking to uh, most often is the inflation story. Um, you know, inflation, a little bit of you know value vis-a-vis -vis growth and the sustainability of that comeback. Um, you know, the sustainability of the 60/40. Uh, one of the things that we've done uh, on the ETF side is we're actually converting a commodity mutual fund. Um, into an ETF should be live um, on Monday the 24th and you know I think in terms of you know what clients are looking for you're talking about you know I don't think the 60-40 is over but there are some other tools to perhaps use um, you know we had a, our, our speaker at lunch uh, mm -hmm. you know make the case for um, you know commodities bonds in particular but um, you know and I think the wrapper being more uniform now as an ETF, you can use it strategically without a doubt. Um, you know, but this is an asset class that historically has been more tactical, and uh, so we've made that adjustment. But you know, what I will will tell you about Newberger in terms of you know kind of the house view, um, you know, the one common thread is that inflation will be stickier. So that's what we've been talking to clients uh, about. Most, Steve, most how, about, how about you? I think we've been having a lot of the same conversations. So uh, we launched a product uh, in January of this year, uh, ticker HGER Hedger. Um, and um, you know, as I noted, uh, we have a history of trying to seek out managers. We partnered with a firm called Quantix Commodities out of Connecticut um, that's led by Don Castoro and a team of folks who used to run the internal trading desk for commodities at Goldman Sachs. Um, and traditionally, if you looked at many of the products that were out there, PDDC and others, um, they're built off of BCOM and indices that weren't really designed to hedge investors against inflation. They were designed to help corporations manage um, um, their commodity risk. And so we partnered with uh, Quantix to design an index and a product that was specifically built to gain access to commodities, but was done so in a way that um, <clears throat> through the dynamic role strategy and through the creation of kind of two different regimes, one being based on scarcity, one being based on debasement, uh, it dynamically shifts uh, and protects investors against inflation. And so we're having a lot of those same conversations. Product's been out uh, there for a while. It has shifted now throughout the course of the year away from scarcity and more towards gold. So gold makes up about 30% of that index now. Um, and it's a really dynamic way for investors to kind of protect themselves against inflation. That being said, uh, nobody knows what's happening long term in the market. And so our desire and goal is really to be able to build a suite of the active ETFs such that if folks want to build an entire balanced portfolio, they could do so utilizing Harbor ETFs. And so we spent a lot of time launching active products 
uh, in international core, large cap value, large cap growth, still a long way to go. Um, but we really feel like we've made some good strides, obviously, in the last 12 months at, at being able to offer those types of really solid solutions from really good managers in, in the active ETF wrapper. I know, Michael, you spend some time with clients, but you obviously spend most of your time thinking about the yeah. product development roadmap. I mean, you feel free to opine on client commentary, but would love to hear from you in terms of as you are hearing things from your teams, what are those strategies? What else are you guys looking at? Yeah. What are you considering? Yeah, I, they don't let me out of the house very often. Uh, so it's always <laughs> nice to see clients and see other folks from the industry. But um, I think the, the thing that I'm most excited about is that our industry has so much creative energy. There's so much entrepreneurial spirit on behalf of innovating with new products. The problem is when you have, as Mo said, sort of legacy managers like Putnam, there's only one direction historically for that creative energy to go, which is new types of investments. And very quickly that can take you away from your core competency. So let's say you're restricted in the US retail market. The only thing you deliver your products through is a mutual fund. Well, you can't innovate on vehicle. You're gonna have to innovate on investment strategy. And if you end up stretching yourself too thin and moving away from your core competencies, you've lost, you've lost the thread. And you're now starting to offer new products that aren't the best of what you can actually offer. And so I think looking at our own product development history and looking at our competitors, where we've made missteps is where we've moved away from what we do best. What's great about the rise of the active ETF, it's a new way for a manager like Putnam to continue doing exactly what it does best so take our large cap value strategy, for example. It is a $16 billion mutual fund. The market has told us, hey, you're good at this. We have strong demand for what you do in the large cap value space. So instead of Putnam having to just try to do something different, we can deliver that same strategy to a whole new set of clients through an active ETF. And we've already found that. You know, it's, we've raised roughly $100 million in about 18 months. That's a huge win for us, but it's more importantly, it's a huge win for our clients because it allows them to continue getting what Putnam offers, but in a new vehicle, rather than having to say, I wonder why Putnam's doing that. Is this new product decision really connected with what clients need? And this has allowed us to stay really true to what we do best. Yeah, and, and uh, Fred brought it up already, but so I'm gonna kind of put you on the spot, Michael, and feel free yeah. others to kind of jump in here. The idea of a mutual fund ETF conversion, right? Yeah. And so that is another pathway that is developed for managers in terms of entering the market, right? And so kind of the trailblazer was a firm called Guinness Atkinson, right, who did the first conversion uh, a little under two years ago. And then, you know, the more notable one is someone like Dimensional or DFA, right, who has quickly become the largest active manager by assets under management because they decided to use a product strategy by which they were taking largely legacy taxable strategies uh, and turning them into ETFs, right? And so already have roughly 55, 60 billion dollars in, in assets under management and they're number one there in kind of the space. But I don't know if you guys thought about that in terms of roadmap, obviously, Fred, you have one that's gonna happen next week on the NYC, but Michael, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, it, it's funny. I was talking to, they do let me talk to clients sometimes. Uh, I was talking to one of our biggest clients, uh, you know, Wirehouse, who I think is represented here today. And you know, I was talking to one of their home office due diligence analysts about our plans for you know our future ETF launches. And the, the guy I was talking to said something about, oh, are you all thinking about doing that? And I said, well, what do you have to say? We're not gonna do anything that's gonna go against what works for you and for your clients. You're our main point of contact for the entire market. And so we don't have permission to do something drastic like convert a mutual fund to an ETF if our biggest 
partners don't approve of it. So I think that's what's really changed for us. When we first you know, entered the ETF market, we did talk about that. It would be a really good way to get scale in our business quickly. It would be a good way to become relevant in the ETF market. Um, but is it what the end clients want and is it something that our distributors can accommodate? You know, 18 months from that, from that time, our distributors have said, we've done it a few times now. It's actually not as hard as it seemed. We're pretty comfortable with it. And overall, the retention at the underlying client level has been pretty solid because clients recognize that the ETF has major structural advantages over the mutual fund. So I'd say our thinking, we're not there yet. You know, we haven't done anything. We haven't disclosed any plans publicly to do so. But our thinking has evolved really pretty meaningfully because you know, we've seen folks do it and do it really well. Fred, anything to kind of add on the, the pending conversion and broader plants? Yeah, I mean, you know, just generally speaking, um, as it relates to conversions, you know, the, the two main factors, uh, you know, to consider traditionally for mutual fund managers is, you know, cash drag. And now, theoretically, uh, with the creation redemption mechanism out there, you don't, you don't have that problem um, where, you know, your decision to carry cash is now considered an, an active position. Um, and then, of course, the tax efficiency uh, of ETFs is available to, you know, active managers as well. The custom in kind, uh, you know, transaction market is, you know, very robust. It's very efficient. Um, and so long as, you know, the current regime of, of, of regulation stay in place, um, you know, it's better for both, uh, you know, the client and the manager. Um, you know, to run money in a mutual fund. What I can say about, you know, our conversion um, uh, in the commodity space, it's a 40 act Cayman sub. There, you know, there are no, ta there are no um, you know, tax benefits necessarily given the, the structure, um, you know, of this particular fund. Um, you know, we just think, you know, the vehicle is more appropriate, um, you know, to a broader client base. Makes sense. Steve, anything you like that? Yeah, so we actually did a conversion earlier this year. Um, we partnered with uh, one of our sub-advisors on another fund. <clears throat> they had a growth dividend strategy that um, they had had outstanding for the better part of 10 years. It was really um, closely held partners of the firm, the founder of the firm, Will Muja, and others at Westfield who had invested in it. Um, they didn't really have distribution, uh, but it had a wonderful track record. It was actually a Morningstar five-star rated fund um, that had no distribution. Uh, and so it was kind of the, the, the perfect world to convert. Uh, we converted that in May. Uh, we've seen good flows in there. The advantages have already become uh, prevalent. We've been able to utilize uh, some custom baskets to alleviate tax uh, drag uh, where the manager repositioning. So we're really excited about that. It's a great product. and, and um, to the earlier points, most of the firms that we worked with were uh, super helpful and super interested in making it all work. Um, so the distribution partners don't fear it. Um, they're not worried about it. As long as you're reaching out to them and communicating with them, uh, it's been a great experience. And then I think, you know, most of it has focused on equity products. I think one of the real interesting things that we had, because we have a couple more filed um, to, to convert now, um, on the fixed income side, there are a couple of managers who have come back to us and said, listen, we have some really tax-sensitive fixed income products. Generally, in the mutual fund structure, it takes us a long time to reposition the portfolio because we don't necessarily want to be generating and selling bonds while they're uh, at a premium, uh, where we'd be generating further tax uh, liability for our investors. 
Um, and so we lose 20, 30 basis points of returns every year waiting for those bonds to either mature or fall into a position where they're not having to generate capital gains. And so the ETF structure would actually uh, allow us to, to beef up our returns by 20, 30 basis points if we converted it. And so uh, that was really interesting. Uh, and, and so we have some products that we think we're going to convert on the fixed income side. And that had generally not been something that many folks had considered when looking at, uh, at conversions. It was always more an equity-based strategy. But, but we think it, it has a lot of legs in the fixed income world as well. Yeah, so to just contextualize, again, that's, I think my role is just to put context and data behind everything. So uh, we're looking at about $55 billion in assets that have converted from mutual funds to ETFs um, and about 25 products, right? And I think in the pipeline, you have north of 15 um, and from a number of different issuers, right? So I mentioned dimensional Guinness, obviously you have two up here. Uh, we have the folks in Vesco, JP Morgan, so a lot of different asset managers using this as part of their toolkit and clearly looking at their product lineups and figuring out where does it make sense as they go through everything that they kind of just shared. So maybe staying on the topic of innovation, right, because we've talked about um, within the wrapper that 1, 2, 3.0, we've talked about semi-transparent ETFs, obviously the conversions, all great things that provide more access to the wrapper. As each of you think about the wrapper, what, what else do you kind of see as potential areas of innovation? Maybe, Steve, I'll start with you and go in the opposite direction. I, I mean, I, I think it's really, you know, green fields. There's, there's plenty of, of innovation opportunities out there. Um, I think specific asset classes that have, have yet to, to have been accessed in, in ETFs, ways of delivering packaged small cap strategies, as we talked about. Um, um, Commodity strategies, multi-asset strategies, I think, uh, are ripe for innovation within the ETF wrapper. So, um, you know, again, the, the ETF rule and the changes associated with the regulatory environment have opened the door. Anything you can do in an active strategy on the fund side, you can issue and do on the ETF front. Um, it will take a little while, obviously, due to market conditions and everything else for us to get there. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the opportunity from, from my perspective is limitless. You know, we've now launched an international uh, strategy, global strategy, uh, large cap equity. So I think rounding out some of the style box information, yes, is all there. Um, but from a thematics perspective, I think more firms are looking at that on the active front. Uh, I really think multi-asset will come into play, particularly in this type of environment where those types of products can really help protect against the downside. Uh, I think traditional hedge fund replication strategies, one of the fastest growing ETFs this year uh, is a product, ticker DBMF, um, 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 which is a, a commodity trading advisor, CTA. Um, and so kind of the idea that somehow you're constrained by the ETF wrapper from issuing either hedge fund-like strategies, hedge fund replication-like strategies, or other, other strategies has, has kind of really, um, that's uh, you know, gone by the wayside. And so I would think you're going to continue to see things like that, you know, more advanced ideas around the buffered ETF idea and more hedge fund-like um, downside protection type strategies, tail risk strategies, uh, I think are super interesting. And, and there just isn't a lot of supply in the market yet. Uh, and so investors haven't had the opportunity to, to put assets there, but I think they will. Yeah. Fred, anything you'd like to add? Y yeah, sure. Just to kind of parrot off what, you know, Steve was getting at, I, I see ETFs, you know, uh, you know, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1
2.5, 2.5, whatever it may be. <laughs> um, you know, it's tools versus solutions. And, you know, there are a lot of tools out there. Um, we haven't, you know, found all the solutions. If you look at kind of what's, you know, selling out there, enhanced income, uh, you've got defined outcome, you've got some of these buffer strategies. You know, we'll see if they work, but uh, I think there's a lot of open ground um, on the solution side of the business. And, you know, uh, like I said, you know, we came in uh, with thematics, um, you know, late in the cycle. Um, there's been a lot of buzz about this, you know, particular category. You know, I look back to 2017 as kind of, you know, when this became a buzzword. Uh, if, you, if you take a look at the 40-year cycle, this is very late. Um, you know, but at the same time, uh, you know, the major passive indices are concentrated with companies that, you know, have become more mature. Uh, I'm not going to call them mature. There's still some growth there. But, um, you know, I think under the surface, uh, traditional indexing, traditional factor uh, exposure uh, may not work, you know, like it did over the past decade. And, you know, how do you account for the next cycle uh, and the change of leadership in particular, um, you know, that, that we see in that next cycle. So I think this is a test for, you know, some of the ex experimentation uh, that's taken place in, in, in ETF land and, you know, time will tell. Yeah. Michael, anything to add on the innovation front? I mean, I think you both had great answers and covered most of the specifics I would have wanted to cover. I, I think, you know, at the risk of sounding like kind of a, an active zealot, which I think, you know, we all are, are ad advocating for, you know, active management in the ETF wrapper. I think one thing I'm intimately familiar with is that a manager like Putnam has got a lot of really interesting strategies that have been kind of hiding in a back closet for a long time where, you know, Putnam, we don't really keep mutual funds that are under 100 or two or 300 million bucks, whatever the number is, and every manager has a different number, what is the threshold below which you're not making money on that fund or it's not economical? And so it's really hard to launch a truly novel strategy when you're a massive scaled player like a Putnam. It's, if you're an, entrep an ETF entrepreneur and you're just me working out of your garage, you know, a $100 million ETF is a huge success. It's hard to redefine success for a legacy manager like a Putnam. The good thing about ETFs is I think it's humbled a lot of us in saying, hey, you're going out, you're building a brand new business, you have to learn what it's like to raise from zero dollars. And so I think that's really opened up the playbook for us. It's made us say, hey, we're gonna launch something totally new, let's do one of those really interesting strategies that's been hiding in that broom closet for us for a long time. And for us, you know, I, I think the BDC income ETF, which is PBDC, which we just launched, that's a strategy we've had a live track record on for four years. We've been waiting for the right vehicle. The ETF is the perfect vehicle for this. It's a really differentiated alternative income strategy. We want to have that connected to the, the type of vehicle that our clients who would be interested in that strategy are going to buy, and that's the ETF. So I think I have a lot of faith that you know managers like Newberger Berman, you know managers of managers like Harbor have a lot of interesting stuff that's been you know just waiting to be unlocked, and the ETF is is really going to unlock. Yeah, so I'm going to contextualize again, because that's, again, what I do. Um, and so I think that from an exchange perspective, naturally, we're seeing a lot of different things happen. Uh, there's a few trends that I would point out and just amplify. And so one would be alternatives, right? And so we mentioned one particular product that has grown really rapidly from basically about $100 million to a $1 billion this year um, that's NYSE listed. Um, but we're seeing that there's a lot of uh, demand in the pipeline for additional alternative strategies. Um, 
So a lot of managed futures, a lot of multi-asset, uh, really coming in where historically you would never see something like that in the ETF wrapper. Um, two is commodities, right? And so both commodities and alternatives have garnered more assets this year from a new cash flow perspective than the prior five years combined, right? And so there are areas in which they're growing, and actually the first half of this year set up very nicely for the commodity market. And we heard a lot from Jan in terms of kind of his viewpoints on that, but I think that we're gonna continue to see more in commodities. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, we think about thematics, right? And obviously Newberger Berman is there, talking about equities, but we're seeing on the fixed income side, right, kind of the rise of something more niche right? And I wouldn't necessarily use the term thematic in terms of speaking to what we're seeing in that marketplace, but we are seeing people take everything and bring it down to more narrow constructs, right? And so, so the first subset of products that were launched that are specifically tracking things like the one year, the three, the five, and the 10, right? With just five or so holdings, right? So very novel, very different than anything that we've seen traditionally within the wrapper. And so I think as we think about other active managers that are coming to the marketplace, other innovators, they're clearly looking in those swim lanes at what opportunities can come up. And in fixed income market, right, we recognize that that's a market that historically has lacked liquidity, right, and has been somewhat untransparent. That is changing very rapidly with technology. And so I think that that in itself is unearthing new opportunities as well. So we have, I think, roughly 10 minutes. Um, I'll pause for a second to see right away if we have any questions from the audience, if there's a brave soul out there. Um, if not, I'll pepper away with some additional questions. Besides having an innovative, unique idea in a competitive arena that you function in, can you comment on marketing the importance of content, web presence, how smaller guys are able to compete on that level against big guys. Yeah. I don't know if, so I, I think that I'll kind of reframe the question, I believe, to what you asked, right? So understanding how, if you have a novel or unique uh, investment idea, how you bring that into the wrapper and how you compete with incumbents, right? And so you're a, a relatively small shop comparatively, quite yep. large still, but maybe you speak to it given your history. No, and you know, I, I think one of the benefits of the ETF wrapper is it has, especially on the active front now, it has democratized, um, you know, Harbor at, at 50 billion in assets against, you know, Newberger Berman or Putman, which is five, six, seven times that from an overall asset perspective. If you can um, really target, uh, particularly in the digital world from a marketing perspective, um, you have the opportunity. Um, when you're launching a product to compete for the same dollars as Putnam and Newberger, um, the same advisors, the same net new flows because none of the products are generally allowed onto platforms and through the traditional distribution channels. And so um, if you can hone your message and you can build up a presence within the digital channels, um, you have a much better chance for success. Um, to go from zero dollars to 100 million, which is kind of the gold standard, because as soon as you get there, then your opportunity to, to go on the traditional platforms, wirehouses, other things, uh, you, you have that. So uh, if you can develop uh, a skill set to be able to sell your product, digital, hand-to-hand -hand combat, to new advisors who are willing to take a chance from zero to 100 million, you can raise capital and you can get your product products to a size ahead of the other providers where you have a little runway and some time that you've built up 
And so there's a first mover advantage there, and then there's also um, um, a skill set advantage if you have that digital presence um, to get your ETF scaled and then, and then have the runway to most point. Uh, again, that product DBMF, um, you know, people heard about it this year. It was 64 million in the beginning of the year, across the billion dollars er earlier in the week. Um, people thought it was a net new ETF. The product had been around for four years. That firm had been sucking wind trying to find an audience for their product for a long time. Uh, and they got it, right? And, and now they're, they're generating assets, you know, hand over fist. So uh, great question. I think there is an opportunity early to, to develop a skill set utilizing digital and other marketing tools to win early. Yeah, I think maybe the only thing I would add, right, is we think about the ecosystem, it's built up very nicely to support smaller issuers as they enter the market, right? So you have obviously your own path that you can go down in terms of vertically integrating your business and developing it, right? Similar to the, the three panelists right here. Or you can go out and leverage one of these turnkey platforms, yeah. right? That in essence, you're renting or leasing various component pieces of managing that business. So you can keep your costs relatively low and you can see if something sticks, right? And so we've seen a number of folks that have gone in that direction initially and then as they've expanded their lineup, maybe they bring it in house, right? So I could spit off multiple examples of products. DBMF is the example this year. INFL, which is an inflation beneficiaries product from Horizon Kinetics, was the example I would use maybe 18 months ago. And the big prime example now who has kind of had a reversal though that folks often point to is someone like ARC who kind of paved the path for active ETFs. Meteoric rise, clearly the last year in particular has been really challenging for that team, but most people never realized before they found true success, they'd have been in market for four or five years, right? And so it was a battle to get there before they actually took off and gained the lion's share that they did. Lover so. or hater, Kathy Wood changed the game. I mean, she, so you can did. criticize her investment strategy, you can criticize a lot of different things, but she absolutely democratized raising assets in the ETF space on the active ETF front, and, and she kind of invented a path for success, so. Yeah, kudos to her. Any other questions? Yeah. Unlike uh, ETFs, mutual funds can soft close. So let's just say you were to get a lot of assets. What options have you considered to deal with that so that you avoid diluting performance? It, yeah, sure, I think, and I'll let you hop in after that. I think, I think that's, that's a very important question because you can't you know, close an ETF. So uh, certain exposures you know, do have capacity constraints uh, at some level. And I think, you know, in fixed income, which is where I think the most interesting opportunities are, uh, the question is, you know, we kind of talked about playing a niche strategy. You've got, you know, treasury yields, you know, now you've got a lot of room to get creative, but how creative do you want to get? How niche can you get? Um, and that's, I think, you know, one of the questions being asked uh, in product development rooms is, um, you know, hey, there may be uh, capacity issues. So uh, that's a good question, and I would, I would argue, I know, you know certainly you know, Neuberger evaluates that um, risk, and I'd imagine you know, most others do as well. Yeah, I, th I think to provide a direct answer, there is the regulatory availability to tag creation fees at a higher rate than redemption fees, right? Mm -hmm. So that is allowed right now. So I can go out and charge a 2% creation fee on my product at any time I want. Uh, and that's perfectly legal and perfectly available from now obviously if I'm trying to raise assets I'm not going to do that um, but that's certainly and and there are other uh, levers that are like that that you could deploy 
if you were worried about still being able to offer your product on the market, still being allow, allow investors, you and I, to trade actively, that's not going to affect their ability to go ahead and buy or sell. So you, you, there are things like that you could do, the idea that there's nothing available and that capital or uh, capacity constraints uh, would prevent some asset class from, from being issued an ETF. No, there are things that, that managers can do. We, just, we haven't gotten there yet, but, but there are opportunities. And then, um, you know, adding sub-advisors on products for particular asset classes. Um, you know, if you're launching a small cap product, would you go with just one advisor? Well, you know, if, if you're a firm that only manages in-house money, maybe that's a constraint. If you're a, a firm that goes out and seeks sub-advisors, we have the ability to add two or three sub-advisors and, and the billion dollars in capacity that might come along with that. And I, I can provide a very specific recent example. So I mentioned our BDC income ETF we just launched. That's a relatively capacity constrained type product and we spent a lot of time thinking about what was the right vehicle to offer you know use to offer that to the market and we spent a lot of late nights in an office saying what what would we do if this product raises you know so many you know so much money that we don't know what to do with it and i think the nuclear options of you know kind of either directly or indirectly soft closing the fund um, you know and trading at a persistent discount it's not ideal, having a ratchet up fee, not ideal. Like there's a lot of these options that exist that are not ideal. So I think for folks like us, we have to be much more flexible on what is the full set, full investment universe? What's the backup when you enter the space? And so for us, the manager who manages this BDC income ETF also has a corresponding expertise in mortgage rates, which you heard earlier has a really high correlation to the BDC income or the BDC market. So not ideal, we don't want to have this be, you know, a BDC income and mortgage rate product, but that flexibility is built into our prospectus so that when the time comes, you know, knock wood, if that happens, great. Um, we're gonna be able to continue offering the same fundamental expertise, which is small cap income, without having all of the, the laundry list of problems that happen when you have an oversubscribed fund. I think that's a phenomenal question, and obviously one yeah. is an industry continues to be an area of focus, right? I mean, I call it the first world problem as we get to that level, right, as you start thinking about the size of the products to, to achieve some of those capacity issues, but one that's very important that asset managers are thinking about ahead of time, so you got a good feel for that. So I think we're right at time. Um, we can take, I think we'll take one more question. We'll be quick. Yeah, okay. Hi, yeah. Um, so I think, Fred, you alluded to this, but... You know, what are your thoughts or, or what are you hearing regarding the possible repeal of the in-kind um, exclusion for A52B6? And then, you know, what would, your, what would a path forward be if, if that were to happen? Yeah, yeah I, I can't speak to, um, is that rumor or? Is, <laughs> I, I've heard the rumor, but no, I don't. It was proposed uh, last year. Yeah. It was, yeah. I, I, honestly, I don't follow that. I would imagine that um, that does change some things, certainly from a product development standpoint um, and I guess you know to some extent you probably see you know funds with no assets kind of close if in fact that was you know part of the decision to um, to launch but I, I can't really speak to um, the probability I think when that first came out right proposed by Senator Washington and um, mm -hmm. you know the, the feeling was that somehow ETFs were um, you know, the, the asset management tool for the super rich. I think the industry has done a great job um, explaining that 
really you'd be attacking the folks, uh, you know, mid-level folks that you, were, you said you didn't want to go after from a tax hike perspective. 92% of ETF, invest, ETF investors uh, earn $150,000 or less. Um, and that's a statistic that the ICI and the industry itself came out with. Uh, and so I think they've done a really good job trying to educate Congress and others who had put initially put forth that rule to show them that, that really you're barking up the wrong tree and you'd be going after uh, the investors that you really don't want, didn't want to target. And so while anything's possible moving forward, I think broadly um, the, the industry is much more comfortable today having gone through the back and forth and the education process uh, with regulators that, that we don't think that that's uh, anywhere near risk that it was 12 months ago and when, we were, when they were talking about it this time. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I think we've seen this a few times and it hasn't materialized for that very reason. Um, so I do think now we're at time, so I'd like to thank Michael, Fred, mm -hmm. and Steve um, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you.